The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. A very warm welcome to Squawk Box with Karen Cho, Jeff Cutmore, myself, Steve Sedgwick, and these are your headlines. German Finance Minister Olaf Scholz calls for a united front, telling CNBC in an exclusive interview that countries need to work together to clamp down on COVID as we launch Germany, the engine of Europe. If we could come to similar measures in all the places, this would help a lot and make it more understandable. There is not a time for opening. This is the time for being very tough, for keeping infection rates down. Meanwhile, the IMF lifts its global growth outlook and lauds China's response to the crisis, but warns of daunting challenges pegged to vaccine rollouts. In the UK, in the US, in, in Israel, uh, you know, the, the share of the population that is being vaccinated is either very high or it's heading towards very high numbers. But that's not the case in many other parts of the world. The sources tell CNBC that Morgan Stanley dumped $5 billion in Archegos-doomed bets the night before a massive fire sale, while Goldman's David Solomon says his bank was able to avoid the worst of it. This is not the first time this has happened, and it's certainly not going to be the last. We'll certainly see this again. From my perspective, our risk controls worked well. We identified risk early on. We took prompt corrective action to lower our risk. Jeff Bezos supports a corporate hike despite years of tax avoidance scrutiny. But the Amazon boss stopped short of backing President Biden's 28% plan. And Deliveroo braces for a big day with 70,000 retail investors preparing to trade their stock for the first time as it emerges. Goldman Sachs reportedly ploughed £75 million into the stock in a bid to prop up its poor debut. So today, CNBC is launching a brand new editorial franchise, Germany, the engine of Europe. We're making the occasion, or marking, I should say, with an exclusive one-on-one interview with the German finance minister and deputy chancellor, Olaf Scholz. In this crucial year for Europe's largest economy, we'll be speaking exclusively to the leaders and policymakers shaping Germany's future. We'll look at what's driving its industrial heavyweights and how traditional manufacturers are modernizing to continue competing with global rivals. We'll also take a deep dive into the country's energy transition and see whether Germany can make its green ambitions a reality. On the political front, of course, we'll be focusing on the road to Berlin as the country prepares to select new leadership in a general election this autumn. We'll find out what the end of the Merkel era means for Germany and Europe's place on the world stage. And in amongst all of that, we'll be tracking the government's response to the ongoing fallout from the COVID crisis. 
Well, German Finance Minister Olaf Scholz has told CNBC exclusively that he wants to see German states take a unified and coordinated approach to coronavirus restrictions, rather than choosing their own lockdown rules. Anetta asked him how he would coordinate restrictions across Germany's 16 states. We have to take a lot of restrictions, and this is what happens in many places. And it would be very good if we could have an agreement that makes it happy, feasible for anyone to understand that they are taken in all the places and that there is a common strategy which is uh, understandable for anyone because the people see that there is a lot of, uh, of, of activity going on to reduce the infection rate, but they are wondering whether it's very easy to understand if they are always different between the different places. So if we could come to similar measures in all the places, this would help a lot and make it more understandable. There is not a time for opening. This is a time for being very tough, for keeping infection rates down and uh, coming to the progress we will get from vaccinizing the people. Let's talk about the vaccination campaign and rollout, because it has been slower than one would have expected um, earlier this year. And there's a lot of frustration also on the vaccination rollout here in Germany. Now with the AstraZeneca changes, there's even more pressure to have perhaps more vaccine coming from other sources. So are there plans to change your procurement we are part of the European decision-making processes on buying vaccines. And uh, this is what we did. A lot of them are already ordered. And anyone knows that everyone knows that we will have a lot of vaccines now in the coming weeks and months. So it is now uh, a lot of vaccines each week. We have uh, now started a site of the centers where people are vaccinated to open the process for the medical people serving all over the country, that they could do a lot and uh, the doctors are doing it. And uh, so I think we will come to a situation where in the end of this month, it will be four to five million um, doses a week. And uh, if we continue with this process and are using the coming vaccines for, for, for making it better, to, to have old people vaccinated, I think this will make the necessary progress. And this is why we have to be strict now, because if we are strict in reducing the infections, it will be easier to have the success coming from vaccinating. Finance Minister Olaf Scholz there. Well, let's bring Annette into the conversation. Annette, of course, joins us from Berlin and conducted that interview. And I guess no surprise is, um, Annette, that Olaf Scholz uh, wants the federal government to uh, uh, show a good light when it comes to managing uh, COVID uh, in spite of um, other impressions at this stage, given the need uh, to put in a, a good showing in the polls later on in the year. 
Yeah, exactly. But it seems that um, the poor vaccination rollout is mainly a damper on the CDUs showing in the polls, I have to say. Like, compare it to one year ago when Angela Merkel and the CDU had showings roughly at 35% to 38% um, uh, acknowledgement from German voters in the polls. Now they have dropped to levels not seen for many years, uh, hovering somewhere around 25 to 26%, which also means that it's not essentially clear whether the next chancellor will actually come from the CDU. So Olaf Scholz is also a candidate for chancellor for his party, the Social Democrats, but clearly the Greens are also quite popular these days. So I had to ask him how much um, sort of appetite for change is currently among the German electorate. Take a listen of what he had to say about that. I'm sure that there will be a change uh, after the next elections. As you know, I'm running for being the next chancellor and my party wants to lead the next government. Uh, and the chances are growing, as anyone understands, looking at the, uh, at the polls and seeing that there is not a favorite anymore and that this is the time for a change and for a chance for, for labor. But for you taking the role as the chancellor, just to understand that rightly, you need to have a higher um, showing in the polls than the Greens, right? We want to increase uh, the showing in the polls for the Social Democratic Party. And uh, when any and all the parties will have uh, decided on their candidate for chancellery, I think this will be t the time for starting the process for getting better polls. And anyone is then choosing who, what which party should lead the country, even in the coalition government, and who should be the next chancellor. And this is not the best, uh, this is not the worst thing for the Social Democratic Party. We have a good chance. Um, talking about policy options after the next federal election, also in the light of all the spending now taking place with, uh, to fight the corona pandemia, um, do we need to have higher taxes in this country also for the corporate uh, world? The most important uh, basis for dealing with the debt that is now growing because of fighting against the coronavirus is to have enough growth. And this is feasible. We made it the same way after the last crisis and we will have the chance to, to tackle all the burdens uh, which are coming from uh, fighting against uh, the coronavirus virus with uh, better growth in the next years. It will be a different growth because we have to invest in uh, technologies and innovations that make it easier to fight against the climate change. But this will be something which will help us to have a better growth also. So this is uh, the right strategy to, to deal with the situation. But yes, there is obviously Uh, a situation where it, there is no time for tax reduces for rich people or for for big corporates. And uh, it is very good that this is now a time when in international levels the debate is going to the di same direction. If I look at the UK, if I look at the United States, I see that anyone understands that fair taxation is part of the game. So also in Germany, we most likely will get higher taxes because obviously we have um, spent a lot of money. We will have, uh, there is a need for tax reliefs for low income and middle income people and households. Uh, but obviously those who are very rich, who have very high incomes 
and those uh, and corporates could not expect tax reduces, but uh, in some cases also a responsibility to finance uh, the necessary investments. So new government will most likely mean higher taxes also here in Germany, not only for people, um, but also for corporates. Um, but of course, all currently will depend uh, on how fast that vaccination campaign can be speeded up. Because currently, Germans are hugely disgruntled with the current government. And also even Angela Merkel's uh, popularity is falling because she's not seen as a safe pair of hands anymore, a leader in a crisis, which is actually steering Germany through that crisis successfully. Because the vaccine rollout is really messy and very poor compared to countries like the United United States, but also the UK and people are watching that and they are not happy with that happening. So essentially, key question is whether they can speed up the production of vaccines from BioNTech. They are doing that already, but whether they can also deploy it successfully to the people and they manage to um, get Uh, the vaccines to everybody or the adults until early summer, that will be crucial and will also determine who actually will be the next chancellor, whether it will be someone from the CDU or whether it will be a Green or even Olaf Scholz. With that, back to you. Annette, thank you very much for bringing us the highlights for that interview. And you can watch Annette's uh, full interview with Olaf Scholz and catch up the latest from CNBC's new Germany Engine of Europe franchise by heading online to cnbc.com. So I've got an interesting story here, um, and it may be a story for our times as well, but there's a lot of flashes hitting the wires that uh, Societe Generale is in uh, talks with uh, um, Amundi about a Lixor sale. Uh, sale agreement is in line with Societe Generale's uh, strategy with regards to savings. is expected to be finalised by February next year. So quite a long, uh, long time to finalise this deal. Will be carried out at a price of 825 million euros. Transaction would have an estimated positive impact of approximately 18 basis points on the group's CET1 ratio when complete. The Lixor sale would result in capital gain from disposal uh, for around 430 million euros. So I have many questions. Uh, but this isn't a new story, by the way. We knew last September that Societe Generale had uh, hired uh, Citigroup uh, to oversee the sale of this asset management arm. Lixor, uh, according to ETFstream.com, is Europe's third large ETF issuer behind BlackRock and DWS with an approximate 82 billion euros under management. So it's got me thinking, Jeff and Karen, on many, many fronts. And we'll just have a brief chat here because we've got so much else to shoehorn into the show. One, uh, what happened to asset management? I thought it was the way forward for all of these banks to try and get hold of uh, the high net worth individuals. And two, calling time uh, on the growth of ETFs, perhaps, at the French bank uh, and passing that baton on, on to Mundi because Lixor is Europe's third largest ETF issuer behind BlackRock and DWS, as I just mentioned there as well. So it comes just under a year after Lixor completed the integration of Commerce Bank's asset management activities, including ComStage ETF range as well. But I just think it's very interesting, the, the, the sale down of those assets. Jeffrey, do you want to jump in on this one? Yeah, well, look, ever since uh, Jack Bogle basically identified the idea of the ETF as being a superior way for retail investors to ultimately get broad access to equities, 
without the high charges that active managers were charging and also generally with better performance than the active managers were able to achieve, the industry has just gone gangbusters. And if you look at the giants in this space, and we know who they are, you've you've named a few of them already, Steve, there are only a few of them, and they have seized a huge share of the market in cash that would have previously found its way into active managers. Uh, So what's interesting about this, I think, is there's an element of selling the crown jewels, it seems to me, as far as SocGen is concerned, because um, Europe, I think, is still a, a, a big opportunity in terms of the ETF space. And the fact that um, uh, Luxor um, has what well, well in excess, I think, of 100 billion euros uh, under management in its ETFs is just an indication of the future growth potential that may exist in this space. The challenge, of course, is that the Americans have come into the European market space as well, so you're not going to get it your own way. But I think it is still a very interesting space to watch, and I don't agree that we may have topped out in terms of ETF growth. I think there are plenty of other interesting ways in which you can create ETF indices. Um, There is a a bigger philosophical question about whether ultimately the direction that we're going in with ETFs means that we are perhaps um, uh, challenging price discovery and the importance of price discovery as an indicator of attractive market assets and its distorting company behavior and so on and so forth. But for the time being, while ETFs and broader market indices are outperforming on aggregate active managers and at much lower costs, I think there is still room here for this particular segment of the market to run, particularly for retail investors in continental Europe, who may only just be starting to get a taste for equities again after the last financial crisis, Karen. Yeah, this transaction is a big one for the ETF market in Europe, but even though you know, when word of this got out that the sale was uh, potentially going to happen, it was on the block, you effectively saw some outflows from this ETF and from the business. So I think investors are trying to sort of put their finger on what this meant, but it is seen as a pivotal transaction for now who can grow the slice of the ETF pie. And just worth noting, I mean, we've seen a lot of innovation in the ETF space in the last 12 months or so. That's been where some of the growth has been. Uh, And naturally, too, as we talk about European equities being back in favour, around this reflation recovery trade. It is worth looking at the ETF market in Europe yet again. So this one is quite pivotal yeah. to watch. I, I just one tiny bit, Hipmore. Um, why was it too rich for State Street? State Street's desperate to, to bolster up their position here. Interesting, Mundi paid up. State Street, nah, too rich for us. And interesting to see what the American bank uh, not wish, willing to go forward. Well, we talk about the innovation. I just mentioned the, uh, what we've seen on the ETF space. I think they've been one of the more innovative companies, one of the more innovative banks at this. So perhaps they want to go out alone and do what they're doing best on some of the new products they're bringing to market. Uh, we're going to park it there. Coming up on the show, the IMF warns that the pandemic-era support programs could leave a raft of unintended consequences. We're going to hear from the IMF's Tobias Adrian. That's coming away next. And if you're getting excited about the Engine of Growth franchise, the focus on Germany, make a point of checking out the Squawk Box podcast for more on Finance Minister Olaf Scholz's comments. Uh, We'll be back right after this. Stay with us. 
Listen to CNBC's Beyond the Valley, the podcast that explores the biggest tech news from across the globe. Join me, Arjun Karpal. And me, Tom Chitty, every week as we bring you insights into the top stories, unpack the latest trends and find out where the industry is headed. Now available on Spotify, Apple Music and Google Podcasts. This is not the first time this has happened and it's certainly not going to be the last. We'll certainly see this again. From my perspective, our risk controls worked well. We identified risk early on. We took prompt corrective action to lower our risk according to the contract that we had with the client. And I can't really speak to what other banks have done and how they've handled the situation, but I'm very pleased with the way our team handled it. And that was the CEO of Goldman Sachs, uh, David Solomon, speaking to CNBC as he held the bank's risk controls amid the Archegos fire sale. Meanwhile, sources have told CNBC that Morgan Stanley sold around $5 billion in shares from Archegos Bets the night before the story broke. The bets on U.S. media and Chinese tech stocks were sold to hedge funds on Thursday, the 25th of March. CNBC sources added that Morgan Stanley had the consent of Archegos to sell the stock late that day. Speaking to CNBC, Sheila Baer, founding director of the Volcker Alliance and the founding chair of the Systemic Risk Council, said she was not impressed by the risk controls employed by U.S. lenders. Whether they acted ethically in this, I don't know. Whether they acted legally, I don't know. I think there's going to be a lot more questions about how they handled this situation. But the fact that they even came this close, I think, suggests that, uh, you know, that their risk management leaves a lot to be desired. A fairly tame day on the street after some of the records a day earlier. Investors just peeling away from some of those positions. And you can see uh, slim ranges uh, down about a third of a percent on the Dow, a little bit less on the S&P and barely budging from the flatline for the Nasdaq. But investors focusing on a number of things. We had that IMF a forecast yesterday. The global forecaster has been lifted to 6% from 5.5%, specifically citing the stronger growth profile out of the United States as the IMF changed those numbers. But uh, when it comes to some of the more cautious aspects of investors thinking right now, it boils down to earnings season. We've traded a lot of the pauses around the recovery, but uh, earnings season now, we're on the cusp of that. And the S&P uh, profit growth is in about 24.2% from the same time a year ago. Investors are going to look for that given how rapidly we've seen the ascent of some of these stock prices of late. Uh, just a, a quick note on, on some big moving stocks too. Microsoft was one that had a, a fairly significant bearing on the S&P and also the Nasdaq. A day earlier, it was one of the top movers. So you did see just a little bit of give back in that trade. Uh, Treasuries, we've also seen a reverse despite some of the stronger data points that jobs report and services sector was still at 1.65. So the slightly cooler picture we've witnessed on the yield story has been welcome for a lot of equity investors, not just in the United States. Commodities, we've seen a little bit of appetite for the oil price and this morning we're at 59.5, up about a third of a percent morning session, similar ranges too for the bounce in Brent. Uh, Asian markets, we had a bit of a choppy picture yesterday and that remains the case this morning around the China markets. Uh, we're seeing a slight reverse, roughly half of a percent down for China, six tenths down for Hong Kong, matched against uh, some patches of green. Japan had a bit of a weak session yesterday. This morning it's chasing a little bit of the green, not a huge amount of direction there. Australia, another positive session so far this week, a bounce of just over half of a percent. And the opening calls, it's going to be interesting to see how these European markets match up today after a strong print yesterday, particularly for the FTSE. We ran up to the tune of just over one and a quarter percent across the trading session and uh, popped above that uh, 6,800 point handle. This morning we're chasing another 15. Let's see how that translates this morning. We did have uh, modestly uh, uh, firmer gains yesterday. 
for the rest of the European markets, although somewhat mixed on the performance, about two-tenths on the Italian market versus seven-tenths on the DAX. But this morning, you can see a slightly weaker picture expected to play out. Jeff. Thanks, Karen. The IMF then, to circle back to that story, has warned that fiscal and monetary supports enacted during the pandemic could cause financial vulnerabilities to become structural legacy issues. The fund's Global Financial Stability Report also says excessive risk-taking in markets is contributing to stretched valuations. Uh, Germana spoke to Tobias Adrian, the IMF's financial counsellor and director of the Monetary and Capital Markets Department, and asked him when the risk-taking trends of recent months could become a systemic issue. These events are, are not uh, deemed to be systemic. Um, markets have ample liquidity. And that is an intended consequence of monetary policy. Monetary policy remains easy in most countries. And uh, so that uh, aims at easing financing conditions. And so financial markets are very active. And and that's a good thing. It's helping economic activity. But of course, we do see some pockets of vulnerabilities, some pockets of excesses. And uh, uh, some of the incidences uh, that you mentioned are, of course, uh, uh, individual firms uh, where uh, risk-taking uh, has gone wrong. Uh, so it, it remains first order for regulators and for policymakers around the world uh, to contain risk-taking at the healthy level. So on the one hand, from a monetary policy point of view, you want to fuel uh, financial markets to get the economy going. But on the other hand, you don't want the, that to be excessive. So it's a balancing act. And getting the balancing act right is really the goal for policy. But does the fact that, uh, that there is so much leverage in the system tell you that policymakers, while succeeding at putting out one fire, have potentially created an even bigger issue later on? Well, um, while the patient is in the hospital, you have to do everything it takes to, to save the patient. And uh, unfortunately, the pandemic is not fully conquered yet. Uh, certainly in many countries, uh, in the UK, in the US, in, in Israel, uh, you know, the, the share of the population that is being vaccinated is either very high or it's heading towards very high numbers. But that's not the case in many other parts of the world. We have 7 billion people out there. And, it, you know, we really have to make sure that we are bridging to the recovery. And uh, it, it will be a first order to address these vulnerabilities, to contain risk-taking, and to make sure that prudential tools are deployed in order to, to get a safe recovery and a safe economy after the pandemic is over. So an interesting uh, twin track approach here from the IMF, talking about lifting global growth expectations for this year, but at the same time warning about increasing financial system vulnerabilities. If you'd like to hear more from uh, Tobias Adrian and that interview um, and uh, hear more about his thoughts on China and China's post-pandemic recovery, then do go to cnbc.com for that story in full. I shall indeed, after I've read this read. Okay, the IMF has raised its global growth forecast for 2021, with GDP set to pick up 
two six percent increases. Uh, but the fund has warned that recoveries are diverging dangerously, with emerging markets set to see a smaller rebound amid slower vaccine rollouts. The fund also said the global recovery has the potential to cause persistent economic damage. Well, that's very interesting. The chief economist, Gita Gopinath, told CNBC the upgraded forecast has been boosted by President Biden's fresh round of stimulus. 6.4% is a very strong growth rate. I mean, in fact, if you look at large economies, the US is the only large economy that in 2022 was expected to have a higher GDP than it would have had in the absence of the pandemic based on our pre-pandemic projections. So that, you know, I, there, is not, there isn't another major economy in that situation. So this is, these are very strong recoveries. A big chunk of that, Sarah, is, uh, is a consequence of the uh, US 1.9 trillion stimulus that was, uh, you know, deployed. Uh, that's, you know, half of the uh, upgrade. And the remaining half is that if you look around the world, it's still very much the case that countries continue to adapt to living with the pandemic. And so even though virus cases are high, the effect on economic activity has not been as bad as one might have anticipated. And we'll have plenty more from the IMF and World Bank spring meetings on Thursday when CNBC's Sarah Eisen hosts an IMF panel called The Debate on the Global Economy. Well, panellists include IMF Managing Director Kristalina Gorgieva, the Fed Chair Jerome Powell, Eurogroup President Pascal Donahoe, and the WTO Director General Ngozi Okonjo-Wheeler. Well, you can catch that live on CNBC and our social channels, we have social channels uh, from 1800. Are they social? Are they social media? I don't know. Uh, 1800 CET. Do you have a social channel, Jeff? I don't have a social channel. Uh, not during the time of the not during the time of the pandemic. I must be honest. Socials. <laughs> five uh, kind more of people around the, the garden radar, fire pit, isn't, isn't it? Us. That's a social channel nowadays. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Oh, look, well, Karen's really jealous that we have fire pits in the countryside. And garden furniture. You're not allowed to have them in Labrick Grove. <laughs> I don't, can you burn wood in Labrick Grove? <laughs> I don't know. I was contemplating buying one, but I thought it may not last 24 hours, so it was a little bit but pointless. But I think there are limits to I mean, in swanky West London, I don't think they're allowed to burn wood, are they? I don't know. You need to find so out, There's Karen. always coal. <laughs> oh, apparently we've got to read on. Anyway, Amazon yeah, CEO Jeff it's... Bezos, Jeff. Well, I mean, uh, you know, if you you want to bridge from fire pits to people peeing in bottles, which is the latest uh, story that has Amazon in the headlines at the moment over its drivers, I think Jeff Bezos will be keen to try to move the narrative on. So Jeff Bezos throwing his hat in the ring when it comes to this uh, uh, talk about an increase in corporate taxes in the United States. Uh, the Amazon CEO uh, making the comment in a statement endorsing President Biden's planned infrastructure investment. But the Amazon founder stopped short of endorsing the US leader's specific tax proposals. Uh, meanwhile, the Irish finance minister, Pascal Donoghue, has raised concerns over the impact of a common minimum corporate tax rate and what it could mean for smaller economies. Uh, Donoghue made the comments after the US Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen instigated a debate among leading nations on the issue, saying there had been a 30-year race to the bottom on corporate taxes. Ireland's corporate tax rate currently stands at 12.5%, with the US keen on a rate of at least around 21%. 
Well, the German finance minister, Olaf Scholz, told CNBC in an exclusive interview that he welcomed Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen's support for a global minimum tax on corporations, adding it could lead Europe and the US to strike a tax deal as soon as this summer. The announcement of Janet Yellen is really a breakthrough for the international debate on taxes. I worked very hard the last years on two aspects. One is that we should have a fairer taxing of the digital corporates, uh, which are economically so successful, but not really paying their fair share for financing our common goods. And this is so also in the question of corporate taxation. I'm fighting for an agreement of minim- on a minimum tax in globally. Both processes are now going on, on the, in the OECD, and I think we will get an agreement in summer. And the announcement of Janet Dan that she will uh, support a strong minimum tax on the global level is, I think, the big step forward we needed before we can make this agreement now in this year. Janet Yellen puts a lot of emphasis on the upcoming IMF meeting, and she normally is never extremely dramatic uh, in her wording, but this time she's calling this meeting um, being a potential Bretton Woods moment. What do you think about um, the upcoming meeting? Is it that important? The next IMF meeting is really important. There are a lot of chances for the development of the world that could be um, managed and some of the questions are about fair taxation but also an agreement on growth that we do not break the development and the chances for better growth globally and that we are organizing all the means necessary that the poor countries can recover after the crisis and that they could buy the necessary vaccines for the people. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Cho. Weekdays on CNBC.